she would send me in like one of sort of Santa's helpers uh, into these antique shops. In the days when there were actually antique shops rather than coffee shops. In the days when you could park, in fact, you know, and she would park outside the shops, uh, having identified something in a window. And I, uh, I would then go in to, um, to bring it out to her. Presented by Arcata, the anti-fraud and customer due diligence network for the art world, The Bigger Picture presents a special series of episodes in partnership with London Art Week. A showcase of the best the art market has to offer, we take an inside look at the galleries participating and the stories behind the people that shape them. Starting out, without the money to buy works by great artists, if Philip Mould couldn't afford a work by a Gainsborough or a Van Dyke, he would find one. Some 30 years later, this single-minded focus and unique approach, born out of necessity and fueled by passion, has seen Philip become synonymous with Sleepers, the discovery of lost or unknown works of art. Today from the gallery in Pall Mall and through the BBC series Fake or Fortune, the art dealing broadcaster and his team delight in sharing the big stories about important works that captivates an art-loving public. So take us back to the beginning when you were starting out as a child, because this is where everything really begins. It involves shoe buckles, it involves works of art, it involves uh, nature, the ground beneath your feet. Let's start there. Take us back to the beginning. How did things start for yourself? I was born in Merseyside, quite close to Liverpool. And I had a mother who was really very interested in antiques, but she had a disadvantage in as much that she was in a wheelchair. She got polio when um, she was very young uh, and shortly before I was born. But it didn't stop her. So she'd go out to uh, areas around us in Heswell, West Kirby and what have you. And I would uh, attend uh, on the, sitting on the front seat and she would send me in like one of sort of Santa's helpers uh, into these antique shops. In the days when there were actually antique shops rather than coffee shops. In the days when you could park, in fact, you know, and she would park outside the shops, uh, having identified something in a window, and I, uh, I would then go in to um, to bring it out to her, um, and uh, mercifully, uh, all of the, the the dealers would let me do it. And I remember on one occasion, it was in Heswell, I think it was. Um, I walked into an antique shop, and I met a woman called Zena Robertson, um, and I remember this overpowering smell of 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 cigarettes uh the sweet smell of furniture polish and silver dip that that really hideous sulfurous stink and the fusion of all made made me rather dizzy Uh, but she thrust a spoon in my direction and she said have a look at the hallmarks here it turned out incidentally that uh, she'd been a school teacher but had given that up uh, to do the thing that she she loved deeply which was antiques um, and she was a rather formidable hectoring figure. And so you did what you were told. And I looked at the hallmarks, um, couldn't make anything out. She said, well, read them bit by bit. So what have you got here? I noticed a head. She said, that's the head of the king. And then she said, what's next? And I remember seeing a, a sort of shield with three, uh, a, a shield with a sword and three sheaths. And she said, yes, well, that's the that's the hallmark of Chester. And, you know, so we went through the marks, five or six, and to 11 or, or 12-year-old boy, which I think I was around about that time, possibly even a little bit younger, these were like hieroglyphs that you could understand. And it was bewitching how this 
this spoon in my hand suddenly transformed. One could feel the sort of the warmth by which it had turned from a, a, a sort of inanimate object into something that that breathed and expressed that the, the moment when it was created and and where and 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 who by. And after that, I got interested in in, in silver. I went back to the car. Um, uh, I remember saying to my mother, I, "I rather like antiques. I rather like these these objects." And um, over the next four or five years, I started collecting little bits of silver using uh, my, my sharp young eyes to, to read marks. And I was terrible at school, incidentally. I mean, my, my academic um, record was, was simply appalling, but I found a woman who ignited an interest in me, who came from a sort of pedagogic background. And um, it, it, it just went swimmingly from there on. And after that, I started uh, becoming interested in paintings and, and watercolours, which offered to me a, a, a much greater vista, a, a so much more richness and depth than, than objects, because you're entering the because you're entering the world of illusion and the nuances of, of, of different artists. And the reason I got involved was because my brother um, before me. Um, by this time was um, becoming a, an art dealer himself. He was doing it at university, um, dealing on the side. And then I went to university later on uh, and um, myself on my moped uh, in Norfolk. I've never known cold like it. I've, I, I, I understood just how bitterly freezing England could be, but I would drive around in the winter on my moped to the local sales um, in Norwich. I was doing history of art at East Anglia University, and I started dealing. And then later on, I went to London, um, joined my brother, then started on my own and began to specialise in an area which I could afford because I didn't really have much money. I had the money that I'd sort of made, and my father lent me a little bit. And I got interested in portraiture, portraits of individuals, either famous or ancestral portraits. Um, so by that, I mean portraits of writers, poets, kings, queens, politicians, but also people's ancestors. So at this point, uh, I, I had a way of, 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 of making money, of, of, of making ends meet, which was to approach art from the point of view of the subject. And uh, sometimes it would, it would work rather well, particularly if you found a really emotive figure that someone was was greatly attached to, like you know, a, a, a Shakespeare, you know, probably a later portrait of Shakespeare, but a Shakespeare or a Jane Austen or a military figure or one of their ancestors. And in the process of 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 getting to know all of these historical figures and and the portraits thereof, I began to get to know because one does, you know, if you speak to any dealer, the more you handle, the more you, you pick up. I've got to know the different styles of the major artists who did these portraits. And although I wasn't necessarily owning them myself, by looking at them, I worked out that there's, there's a very distinct way that Gainsborough will do a face compared to, I don't know, let's someone like Reynolds or, 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 or Beachy or Hopner. And when, when you start looking at faces, you realize that portraiture is so much more, to my mind, and this may sound rather controversial, about the painter rather than the subject. What, what the painter will do is interpret uh, the, the features. Their worldview will come out. 
and you 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 get to know how they approach uh, the, the physiognomy, the, the the face, and from from the cradle onwards, we're used to reading faces. Uh, so you can use that equipment to tell one artist from another when you're looking at the faces. And so I was able to, uh, shortly after I established my business, discover the odd interesting painter like Gainsborough or Reynolds that had been miscatalogued or had been um, uh, overpainted, as sometimes paintings are, or covered with with, with varnish and tarnished in, 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 in some way. And, and, and it was this sort of navigation that I'd got uh, by looking at how artists do faces. And, you know, anyone listening to this should try it. Because, you, you know, once you know what a Velasquez head looks like, you can begin to recognize it even from people in his circle. Everyone brings to the feast of a face their own way of describing it. And we've got this nervous system that can read it, this visual nervous system that can read it. And, and that was really how I got, got going as an art dealer proper. Uh, and I, I, I made uh, money this way. I've, I found a, a miscatalog Gainsborough on eBay and uh, a, a miscatalog painting by Sir Godfrey Neller of, of a monk who turned out to be the chaplain to Catherine of Braganza, that is the consort of, of Charles II. And that really got me going. I, I, I sold that for a lot of money, even more than the Gainsborough, in fact. And uh, I then um, I then was able to move premises. I, I, I was sharing with my brother uh, an upstairs office in Bond Street. Then I, I moved down Bond Street, got my own office, um, working with a friend, uh, called Charles Glazebrook. He did landscapes and I did portraits. And then Charles moved on and, you know, bit by bit, um, climbing the, the greasy pole of the art world, um, I, I managed to get bigger premises. And, and then 35 years on, um, I found myself an art dealer in Pall Mall, for better or worse, um, I'm actually greatly enjoying it. And portraiture is still a part of my business a strong part it's 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 the dna um that i i'll never get rid of but i've now become much more um broad i i i will now um f find myself uh, buying early 20th century modern british landscapes and exploring other areas uh, that interest me uh, re recordings of of nature um still lives and um and also a lot of Tudor paintings. I I, I love love those particularly. If, if I had to describe myself now, I'd describe myself as a, a dealer in 500 years of British art, but with um, a, a soft spot for what was going on in England between 1900 and 1950, and what was going on um, in Tudor times uh, between uh, 1550 um, and well a little bit further, probably 1620, 1630. I think is particularly interesting though I mean, we've, we've covered quite a, a period of, of your career um, thus far is um, your relationship to nature uh, the world beneath our feet if you will and I think this was really engendered in you by your father who was a plantsman it's uh, ironic really that one of your favorite painters Cedric Morris is, was also a plantsman what can you tell us about the world beneath our feet and the impact that that's had on you as an individual 
um, and also more broadly the art in which you deal and what we can learn from a flower in a painting, for example. I, I as a as a kid was was very uh, drawn by wild flowers. Uh, I would go for walks with with a carer because my mother couldn't take me, she being in a wheelchair. But I would come back laden with with a booty from the fields and hedgerows, and it was my earliest. Uh, proclivity for collecting really was 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 just picking flowers in the wild and I'd bring them back and uh, then I'd learn their names or be taught their names and um, I suppose you know in embryo that 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 was the the, the art dealer um, and I've always found uh, a really strong connection it, it it attaches itself to part of the brain between nature uh, at its most spiritually moving and uh, art you see art when it's really well done when an artist has with technical brilliance transformed something three-dimensional i'm talking about traditional art now that is something that's before their eyes into something two-dimensional it's a it's a it's a sort of magic trick really isn't it it's a it's something at its best that can be rather miraculous and then when they add a poetic um element to it or a philosophical element um, they imbue that that uh transformative process with with something more you then get great art and i think it's the nearest that the the human condition gets to something divine you you're almost letting go at that point and the work of art takes over and that sort of mystical quality about great art um, belongs um, at the top of its trajectory in the same realm, in, in my mind at least, um, to nature, with nature. I get the same feelings of, 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 of wonder. So I, I feel that they, they are close together. The world of art and the world of, of nature also came together for me uh, very strongly, and it has taken me in a distinct direction um, with the paintings um, of a man called Cedric Morris, Sir Cedric Morris. He was a Welshman born in the late 19th century. He then went to Paris um, in the early 1920s and became marinated in everything that was going on at the period, the modernism of Picasso and Juan Gris and the writers and poets and what have you. Um, but he had another interest that, that, that ran concurrently with his capacity to paint uh, using uh, modern ideas, particularly Cubism, and that was plants. He was a plantsman, and there are about, I think, counted the other day, about 92 or three irises that he named, which he bred. And he brought together, particularly in the 30s, his love an understanding and, and soulful connection with plants with the armory uh, of an artist who, who had benefited from formative years in Paris and uh, produced some really remarkable and, and memorable uh, renderings uh, of the plant kingdom and also of animals as well. And I found an immediate connection with him and started buying his work and then sponsored an exhibition at the the garden museum and then had an exhibition of my own and 
my holdings in him have grown and um i found i found something rather wonderful has happened and that is that my enthusiasm for the natural world has blended as as effectively as as paint on a palette uh, with my my love of art and i ought to add that uh, for the last 25 years i've been involved in a charity to do with protecting wild plants in the wild uh, called plant life uh, and i was its chairman and i'm now president and uh, i at home uh, we have a, a, a lovely garden in the country but possibly where i get my greatest pleasure is is walking and and fostering walking in and fostering a meadow that i have uh, bordering um our garden and uh I look forward to spring. So um, I find myself in, in, in the sort of the cycle of, 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 of my career as an art dealer, um, enjoying life more and more because Cedric has taken me into other areas of, of the 1900 to 1950 period of modern British art. Then there was a, an approach to nature and, and, and the outside world, which I can relate to very easily. Um, with my day job, my 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 my, my sort of nine till five um, or ten till six um, as an art dealer, and it's very satisfying. As we all found ourselves experiencing lockdown, you started a series available on YouTube called "Art in Isolation" from your home in Oxfordshire. What was it like experiencing spring in the countryside? Presumably, under normal circumstances, you'd be in central London. So during lockdown. I found myself in the Cotswolds, in the English countryside, surrounded by nature, and not only in my garden, but in some fields bordering our garden. And it was massively therapeutic. Uh, and and why, why, why am I saying that? Um, I think it was because it was spring, wasn't it? And the sun was shining and nature was on the move. And I have never been in the countryside during this pivotal period in the, in the natural cycle. And it was three or four months. And it was, it was remarkable, really. Although it, it was a really tough time and continues to be for, for, for so many people, I consider myself to be really lucky because I found a connection and a relationship with my surroundings and, and with nature in particular, which was always latent, but became much more profound. And the other thing is I, I got to enjoy and, and love my house more as well. We're terribly lucky because about 17 or 18 years ago, uh, through a, a series of fortuitous happenings uh, we got uh, ourselves in a position to be able to acquire a, a 500 year old house um, surrounded by fields and re later research showed that the, the house had been or a dwelling had been there since the doomsday book and it's thick walls and, and fireplaces and the slight smell of damp and this beautiful lichen encrusted rubble from which it's made um, has um, 
a, a very sort of integral part uh, in my life these days. I, I feel I've sort of, I've, I'm growing old now with the house, partly because there was nothing else to do in a in a work sense. I, I, I did a series of short films, well, about 20 in all, called, called Art in Isolation, in order to keep partly the business going, but also because there was nothing else to do really uh, in, a, in, in a work sense. I developed an idea uh, with my son to do a series on YouTube and uh, Instagram called Art in Isolation, which was walking around the house. Uh, and we've got a, a lot of art that one way or another uh, I've sort of collected or found its way here. And uh, telling the stories of how the acquisition came about and also relating it to the history of the house and the surroundings and a, a greater sense, I suppose, of who who and what interests me. I mean, your, your profile today is, is you know, you, you're at the top of uh, the art world in, in many respects. Um, you know, in the, if we were to use the word mainstream, uh, fake old fortune, the work with the Antiques Roadshow. Um, now, we have, of course, touched on an earlier aspect of your career, and that's one of the things that I'd, I'd like to just return to. You, you kind of, in, in some sense of the word, you make things look easy now, <laughs> for want of a better expression. But when you were starting out, you were you used expressions like to make ends meet. I'd, I'd like to know when you were beginning, what were you actually finding challenging? What did you, what did you have difficulty with? What things were you having to overcome? Well, there were two, two things that I needed to overcome early on I suppose um I've always I've always seen myself as someone who likes to create and communicate as well as keeping the home fires burning as an art dealer so one thing I suppose you could say that I've I've had a challenge doing is perpetually juggling and in my late 20s I, I was given a, a television series uh, to do called Changing Faces, which was the history of British portraiture. In fact, I, I lobbied for it and, and was given it. And I I learnt a lot doing that. Um, but what I also found was that, that, that what keeps me interested and what makes the whole game fun is, is being able to talk about the magic trick, the magic trick of art, what art does to us, the magic trick of locating art and finding it i think it goes back probably to my earliest experiences collecting wildflowers it's it's the sort of hunter gatherer aspect but it's it's also the idea of of um being able to find the words to unlock something that uh, can have a transformative impact on people and i think that that is what i find so so enjoyable and fascinating about art dealing uh, and slash broadcasting about art uh, because one is doing both. And as an art dealer, what you're trying to do is with lighting, framing and the right words is give someone an access and understanding, create a feeling of attachment to an object. And that's precisely what you're doing on, on television. So it's been one of my early challenges was was to combine the two and also to get used to 
working in a, a television situation, which, although I'd done quite a lot at university, when it came to having to memorize lines for uh, a series of six programs on the history of British portraiture, was very challenging, very challenging. And I used to be um, at the end of, of, of a sort of day's run, I used to be sort of both exhausted and on occasions um, seized by nervousness in a way that I, I'm not now. And I think probably in those early days, um, and, and it was a real challenge actually, in those early days, what I was trying to do was slightly punch above my weight. And that is to be sort of wise and informative. Um, when I wasn't really that wise or that well informed, you know, in my in my twenties, I'm, I've I've learned I've learned so much more now, um, and and also I've learned to to leave the gaps where I'm not confident talking, and to 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 ruminate on the areas which um, interest me and and have preoccupied me, um, in particular the. The sort of the higher purpose of art or possibly the the connection between art and nature uh the the therapeutic power of art and doing art in isolation was such a revelation to me about the simple power of telling stories around pictures we got so many wonderful responses a feeling of hope and faith uh that one could tangibly connect with objects around you. And for a lot of people, the objects around them were the only things they were going to get access to for the foreseeable future. And, and we find ourselves in it again now as we're talking. And I think probably something that I feel now is that art dealing and broadcasting, great fun, you know, it, it works well for me. But then there is now probably a, a higher purpose about what I'm doing, and that is the visual arts is something which, with the right apologist, can reach people and help people in a way. At the, the risk of sounding overly um, uh, high-blown about my my profession and my business, but that interests me, and I, I I and I I want to do more of that, and I'm beginning to think that there is there is some way, you know, the gabble of an art dealer can be used in some way to to benefit and help people, and my broadcasting experience has given me the confidence to look into that more. Uh, it's it's rather lovely, actually. It's it's given me something else to think about how important do, do you think the role of, of storytelling is in what you're doing more broadly because you've it's quite it's curious because you talk about tv today and of course that's how too many you, you, you you're well known outside of the art world specifically let's say but you actually attended a national the national broadcasting school much 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 earlier in your life and i'm curious as to see what you were what you could see back then and, and maybe the importance of being able to convey the story around a work of art. How do, how do you think, how important do you think storytelling is? Yeah, I can't stress how, how powerful the story is in bringing people into art. I mean, let me give you an example. If, if you go to the National Gallery or the Tate, just stand back. Um, I only say that 
those two institutions because they're they're on my doorstep and I go there quite a lot. But just stand back and watch how people engage with pictures. They will look at the painting quite often, walking around, they'll look at the painting for one or two seconds. Then they will look at the label, sometimes for four or five seconds, six seconds. They might do it for seven or eight seconds, nine seconds, 10 seconds. And then they'll look back at the picture and then they'll have a look at the label. In other words, their visual response, the validity of what they're encountering is informed by the information, the story. And what I have um, discovered, I think probably more so now than, than ever before, is that it's not quite true that your connection with art is invariably to do with that first moment of does it speak to me? Because I think things will and can speak to you if you have the keys to unlock them. And yes, certainly there are there are moments when it will it, it will hit hit you between the eyes. But so too can the provenance or the background story. When you know that the painting you're looking at was owned by Napoleon or Churchill, when you know that the painting that you're looking at was owned by some people you might admire or or um or, or, or some historical luminary, or that you know that the artist was massively challenged in trying to find the particular subject, or if you're told that this was the last time that the artist was able to do something like this and they exhausted themselves. So the, the canvas is able to pulsate something more than just what you're seeing visually, um, but the 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 background that gives you the portal into it. And if you want an example of that, uh, I remember going to the sale of uh, the late Princess Diana's dresses, or there were four or five of them. You could buy the same dress in some instances in a second-hand shop for £1,500. They were quite good-looking dresses, it has to be said. I mean, very, very plush-looking numbers. But the reason they were making 100,000 is because the knowledge, the certainty that Princess Diana, and you can have a photograph uh, with her wearing it, had worn them. So that the same applies to art, that, that the story, the background, the context, the provenance is part of the, of the truth of the object. And truth and beauty are connected. Does that make sense? I, I, I'm trying this one out because uh, it's, it, it, it gets me into trouble at North London dinner parties, I find. I do think, I do think that, that art does not exist in a vacuum. I think it is a, it's a manifestation of the culture and the individual that surrounds it. And I like to know that I'm looking at something. I'll tell you what it is goes back to the idea of the relic, you know, the, the huge sums of monies that, that changed hands in the 12th, 13th, 14th century, whatever, for the, the um, shin bone of St. Barnabas. You, know, you need it, or, or, or the, a splinter of the true cross or whatever. You needed to know it was your conviction and faith that this was what it was that made it the object um, of reverence. Uh, and 
does it sound um, so evasive and lightweight to say that I think the same could be applied to art? The background story and the foreground impact are interconnected. If you were to think a, a, a little bit more about um, the, the the choices that you had made to pursue broadcasting, what do you think was the appeal? What was attracting you to that, to broadcasting specifically? I mean, what to, to ask a controversial question, why not pursue dealing in the way that you that you could deal? What was the what was the the appeal from such a young age? You mentioned Magpie. What was drawing you down that road to pursue broadcasting? Do you think what's the appeal? When I was younger, I had a very pronounced sort of tunnel vision, really, and it was art, antiques, and, and broadcasting. I had I had a sort of an epiphany moment um, in, in terms of understanding what I wanted to do when I appeared on a children's TV show called Magpie which was the ITV equivalent of Blue Peter. And I had, at that stage of my life, a collection of shoe buckles, which I had sort of found and begun to collect as a result of my encounters with the antique dealer Zena Robertson when I was 10 or 11 and had learned to read hallmarks. So um, up I went um, to, to, to London from Sussex uh, with my collection of buckles in a suitcase um, and was interviewed by someone called Jenny Hanley. I have a signed photograph from her for when, from when I was 15 and was, was on the television programme. And I recently saw someone manage to, to get hold of the, the clip of film in which I was being interviewed. Um, and I, I wore a cravat. I had flared shoes. I had slightly Beatles haircut and looked a bit like Paul McCartney, um, certainly the hair did anyway. And a sort of cut glass English voice that sounds even more English than the Queen. Um, and uh, it was it was a, it was a big moment. Um, I mean, it was it was so thrilling. I got to about eight or nine, 10, 11, 12 million people and it it embedded in me a desire going forward to find a way of of getting back into that world and although i had opportunities and i had a show on, on, on channel four in, in my late 20s and i did a few programs for a thing called the antiques show which was bbc2 it wasn't really until my my late 40s, early 50s, that I was given the opportunities to, to do what I'm doing now. In fact, the pivotal moment came when I was 50 and, and Fakal Fortune came about. And that slightly grew out of, of the Antiques Roadshow, which um, I had started a couple of years earlier. The whole idea of, of using media and writing and doing television and combining it with my other calling, which is art and 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 dealing, partly comes out of the fact that I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to be, and so it was a combination of them both. But it turned out to be a very happy combination. What what drew me to to, to broadcasting? Um, I think it was, I think it was probably the entertainment business, the idea of being able to 
to talk to people, to reach people. But also in the early years when I was getting going, I didn't have enough money to compete with the big boys um, and girls. And so what, what media did was give me a profile and a means of reaching people that was far beyond what could be expected from my material capacity. And that was wonderful, really. Um, I mean, I don't think it endeared me to a lot of other dealers as well. I think they thought I was breaking ranks, um, that what I was doing was vulgar, um, that um, I was too big for my boots. But 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 this was this was my particular way of doing it. Um, I mean, you know, writing books about art discoveries and explaining the arcane process by which a lot of other dealers made money. Um, although I tried to incorporate other dealers into the book, uh, my first book, Sleepers, um, I think it was a challenge um, to to be accepted, and I don't think probably I've ever recovered from that. Um, but I, I decided that, uh, and, and certainly fake or fortune, in, in a sense, has just endorsed that direction. But I decided that that, that was what I could do, how I could do it. Um, my, my, my minimal talents were, were, were um, fully utilised in, in those two areas concurrently. And so that's what I decided to, to do and to be. Um, and it's only now, really, that I and I start looking back, that I can that I can start thinking about the the benefits of this and the it's it's less now to do with just being noticed and having a high commercial profile. It's I'm more interested in nuancing how 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 words and images could come together uh, and also my attachment to nature um, and how it all works the the visual the spiritual the the natural um worlds um, how they all come together and i think and i think a lot of art dealers would would feel the same i mean we are hugely lucky to have worked in a a visual business i don't think i ever at any point really knew what i was doing but but of late in the last few years and i think lockdown has helped as well i think i i sort of know a little bit more now of 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 what i'm about and uh frankly enjoying it would you describe yourself as um ambitious in your in your in your really career um did, was there a degree of planning i can if you connect to art and broadcasting together it's quite interesting actually to view how you've got to break through you need to you need to build that profile for yourself um you know under financial constraints i mean the financial constraints have led you to discover works in a in a very unique and quite different way in a very narrow and highly specialized field but there's a there's like a there's a tailwind behind you particularly in those early years that's making you go down those roads would you was this was this sort of pre, was this orchestrated? Did you have a plan? Did you make it up as you went along? Were you just very focused on a particular goal? How did how did you move forward in those early in those early years? Extremely ambitious, but 
very unstrategic. Uh, I would go from one opportunity to the other. But, but, but what drove me um, were, 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 the, were the distant lights of, of being good at what, I, what I'd set out to do. So I wanted to be uh, a better, more influential broadcaster. I wanted to be an art dealer that was really dealing in the sort of things that they enjoyed. Uh, I think quite a lot of art dealers would, would, would say the same. You know, you go from, from one trick to the other. Um, and, you know, gradually, bit by bit, your successes, with any luck, outweigh your failures. And you you accumulate a portfolio of, of, of paintings and you have the means by which you can sort of move to the next stage. But it, it, it's, it, it, it's climbing blindfold up a rock face. But you do know that you'll get to the rock, top of the rock face if you try hard enough or to a ledge uh, where, where it would be rather nice to land. <laughs> did it, how did it feel you d- describing earlier, of course, this to move through the, the ranks to climb up the greasy pole that um, you feel that there were, that was maybe um, creating an issue between yourself and, and some of the other dealers in the community, the, the art world community, and that, that who, who is this individual? How dare he break rank and, you know, um, uh, do what he's doing? How did that feel? Did that feel presumably... I mean, would you were you looking to build relationships with dealers earlier on, and, and was did you feel that that was a problem that you were maybe breaking rank? As a dealer, I, I may be successful and I may have a, a high profile, thanks to a, a, a wonderful team of people around us. You know, we 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 have survived. But in terms of art dealing, I'm I'm a very small player. But what I I have been able to do by combining it with broadcasting and writing and communicating about what I do, I've been able to to give it uh, a voice um, and my business a status, uh, which is a sort of a hybrid of the communicator and the dealer. And I don't really have any choice but to be what I am in this respect. Um, It's how I've survived. It's my particular specialization, if you want. And I know that that has engendered and created uh, a a certain amount of um, dislike um, amongst other dealers who who do it a different way. Um, And also the publicity I've given to discoveries, my own discoveries, has also probably alienated people. But you know that 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 is what that is what I do. That is what I find exciting. That's the thing I love to be able to bend people's ears about because, you know, that the world is my my world is so full of this this wonderful opportunity to excavate and represent, and the story is so essential as the um, uh, as the ballast to the visual experience. Um, that I want to do it. I can't stop. You know, this is me. Um, and, and for better or worse, I've made a career of it. And, and now I'm refining it um, and enjoying it. And I think probably um, the risk of, the risk of, of, of being sort of overly um, uh, self-regarding, I'm trying to use it a little bit more altruistically. Just go back, actually, to when you were starting out. And you described uh, the Wirral. Your father owned a factory in Liverpool, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
I, I was curious because you, your father really engendered in you an interest in nature. He was a plantsman himself. Um, there was a connection to a lady, Mrs. Piggott, who I think was the lady who started his fascination out with, with nature. Um, but I was curious, how did he react to you and your brother dealing in art? Was there ever any um, interest of you, interest in you taking part in the factory or getting involved in the business in that respect? My father inherited from my step-grandfather after my mother got polio, a, a printing company in Liverpool, which meant that the family, although a southern family, moved north. And my father was a marine commando. He was a brilliant soldier. Um, he's uh, still alive and well, incidentally, at the age of um, 97. Um, and he, there was never any pressure for me to, to follow him into either the services or to the printing business in Liverpool. Um, far from it. He was much more interested that me and my siblings expressed themselves in, in, in the areas where they felt potent um, and fulfilled. What he did do, though, and what was very significant for me, was that he would perpetually remind me about the importance of organisation in my business and balance sheets and, and what have you. Now, I still can't read a balance sheet today, but at least I went through through the process of, of the rather militaristic felt process of, of trying to reduce my sort of rather chaotic visual calling um, into um, a, a grid and pattern of, of um, outgoings and, and incomings. How, how disciplined and focused would you say you, you are as an individual? I mean, if we think for a moment, again, returning to the formative years, the level of research that was required to uncover what others were essentially missing, regardless of where these things were turning up. But you describe that as having a, you know, a real focus in a very narrow area, in a very narrow field. In terms of my own way of doing things, even though I've been very driven, I'm not hugely disciplined. I think that um, I'm always looking for the next opportunity. But what I have always benefited from and I benefit from it particularly now is people around me who are, are, are more focused um, uh, have more aptitude to the type of research uh, that um, I, I might not have the time or inclination for uh, and I can think of five individuals uh, throughout the last 35 years who have facilitated um, the, the business going forward by working closely with me. Um, and they're, they're all in one form or another making their own careers now, um, uh, except Lawrence, the one I, I work with at the moment, with whom I have um, a, a phenomenally close and, and, and effective business relationship. Um, and I couldn't have begun to have done it uh, without these, these individuals with specific skill sets um, who can help on occasions uh, turn water into wine, uh, but also um, can bring me up short uh, when I think something is exciting and, in fact, it's just a pup. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you were to give yourself advice, turn the clock back, or look, looking at yourself at 30 years old, if you were to give yourself advice back then, starting out on that journey, what would it be? I suppose you're asking me, would I have done anything differently? 
and um, gosh, there's probably all sorts of things I might have nuanced differently when I look back upon it. I feel a, a greater sense of, of mellowness in enjoying the the opportunity to write, think, and articulate about my world. And also, I've seen my business over the last five or ten years increase very substantially uh, and broaden. Um, you know, it's taken a long time. You know, I'm 60, and I started when I was well, probably 12 or 13 uh, dealing. So it's 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 taken it's taken half a century, um, but I. I feel looking back, probably the decisions I've made and the things that I've done were fundamentally sound. There's a lot of things I could have done better. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really at the stage where where I regret actually any of these decisions. I think probably that would indicate that I have done the the things that I wanted to do in the way that felt right and the justification of having done so is around me now. Um, don't envy you the, the, the task of, of, of ed editing this. <laughs> oh, bloody hell, you're going to have to listen to all this twaddle again. But good good, good luck with you. And do, you know, do feel <laughs> slash and burn. Thank you for listening. You can follow and subscribe to The Bigger Picture wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about this episode, or to reach out to us directly, please visit arcata.com.